In our text this morning, we're going to consider a subject that we have looked at actually in the past, and that's the subject of why do good people suffer? Remember one time being told, preacher, I never understood what suffering was until I heard you preach. Now I know. Who said amen? Dana, was that you? (laughs) Running away, all right. In our sermon text, it's more pointed than just about suffering. It's about terrorists. It's about a tower falling. And it's still talked about today. It was such a tragedy and such injustice that it's still talked about. People were just going about their business in their everyday life, and they were brutally killed. And what about the tower that suddenly fell? Towers are supposed to be a strength of, a symbol of strength, a symbol of stability. And when they fall and deaths result, we feel less safe. The initial reaction to that is shock, and then the questions come. Why were innocent people killed? Why did the tower fall? Where was God during all of that? Now, in your mind, it probably seems as though I'm speaking of 9-11, but I'm actually speaking of 13-1, as in Luke chapter 13, verse 1. We're in a series of messages entitled Radical, dealing with the hard sayings of Jesus. Today, the hard saying of Jesus is, um, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. So today's message is entitled, Jesus on Repentance. Jesus on Repentance. Luke 13, beginning in verse 1. I invite you, as is our custom, to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Looking, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it, why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. God bless the reading of his word. Go ahead and be seated. 2,000 years ago, Jesus talked about some innocent people who had died. Some, you could say, they died at the hand of a terrorist by the name of Pilate. Others died at the hand of a tower that fell, crushing them. And the same questions that were asked 2,000 years ago are still being asked today. And the answer that Jesus gave 2,000 years ago is still the same answer that we need today. Imagine that Jesus were here in the flesh and blood, and we could ask him about 9-11. We'd say, well, what about those 254 people that died on the, they were passengers on the plane that were killed when the planes that were hijacked crashed? Or or what about the 3,000 people that were in the Twin Towers when the towers fell and they died? Paraphrasing today's text, Jesus might respond this way. 
Do you suppose those 254 people were worse sinners than anyone else who has ever gotten on an airplane? Of those 3,000 in New York City, were they worse people than anybody else? No. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. I believe that's the same answer that Jesus would give today as he gave 2,000 years ago. So let's consider our text dealing with repentance. And then I want to give you some life application to take home with you so you understand how it, how it fits in your life today in 2018. The first thing I want you to notice, Jesus points out the essence of repentance. He tells us really what repentance is, the, the essence of it. The word repent is often joked about today. In fact, unless you're in a church, and not even in a lot of churches do you hear the word repent, okay? But unless you're in church, you hear the word repent, it's usually said in jest. I found some comics that kind of illustrate the attitude of the world on repentance. Repent, sinners, the end is near, spring is coming. They're snowmen, prophets of doom. <laughs> you certainly know how to take the pleasure out of waiting for daffodils. Repent and ye shall be saved, offer void where prohibited by law. <laughs> and you must be preachy. Now, I'm not sure preachy was actually one of the seven dwarfs, but if he was, this is probably what he would look like. Holding a sign says, repent. And then the last one, yes, I'm talking to you. Repent, you sinners. That's the world's attitude on repentance. But, but friend, let me just tell you, when Jesus speaks about it, it's no laughing matter. There's nothing funny about, the, about repentance or the lack thereof. What is the implication of Jesus' words? Simply this, that unless you repent, the blood of Christ, the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, none of that does you any good at all unless you repent of your sin. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us, but not without repentance. It doesn't matter what else you do. It doesn't matter how, how well you do it. If you don't repent, it does you no good. Unless you repent, Jesus says, you will all likewise perish. You know what percentage chance you have of going to heaven if you don't repent? Zero. Zilch. Nada. You will not go to heaven unless you repent of your sin. And you might say, well, wait. I go to church. I do a lot of good things. I give money. I, I, I support a lot of good causes. Yes, you can do all of those things, but none of that matters if you don't repent of your sin. For instance, if we had a counterfeit $100 bill, as long as it could get passed off, that counterfeit $100 bill could do some good things. It could support missionaries overseas. It could, give, it could be put into an offering plate and help a church. It could, be, um, it could be used to buy groceries. But eventually, a bank teller is going to take hold of that $100 bill and be able to tell by the touch of it that it's counterfeit. Having worked several years in a bank while I was in college and in seminary, I can tell you what happens to a counterfeit bill when it's discovered. It's destroyed. That's, that's what happens. It's destroyed. It's taken out of circulation and destroyed. And so what Jesus is telling us here, there are counterfeit Christians who can do a lot of good. There are folks who maybe can serve, maybe teach a class, maybe give money, maybe attend meetings, but eventually they're discovered. And when they are discovered as being counterfeit Christians, they're destroyed. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. The theme of repentance is found a thousand times in Scripture. Now, anything that God deals with a thousand times must be pretty significant. Amen? Now, I can say my own amens, but we'll be here twice as long. All right? Um, 
He deals with it a thousand times. The very first sermon, in fact, the very first word of the first sermon that Jesus ever preached after ending his earthly ministry. In Matthew 4, he's been baptized. He goes out into the wilderness. He's tempted by Satan for 40 days. And as he, as he comes out of the wilderness, here's what it says. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so from his very first message, the very first word was repent. The first time he sent the disciples out to preach on their own, they went two by two in Mark chapter 6, verse 12. And it says, so they went out and preached that people should repent. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit's come. And in verse 38, Peter says, repent in the name of Jesus so that your sins may be forgiven. Paul on Mars Hill was standing in front of a bunch of pagans. And in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, he says, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Repentance has three aspects to it. Now, none of these aspects in and of themselves are sufficient. The first is conviction. There is the conviction of sin, all right? You can't repent of something that you've not been convicted over. Now, there are some who would say that, that only, only those who are chosen will respond out of that conviction. No, I don't think so. I think you can say yes or no to the Holy Spirit of God. John chapter 16 says the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. There's not a person in this room today who's not under some kind of conviction if there's sin in your life. The Holy Spirit, that's his job. But listen, you can be convicted of sin and still not repent. It's not enough just to be convicted. In Exodus 8, verse 25, chapter 9, verse 27, chapter 10, verse 16, three different times Pharaoh confesses to Moses that he has sinned, but nowhere does he repent. Judas, after the arrest and betrayal of Jesus, in Matthew 27, 4, he says, I have sinned in that I have betrayed innocent blood. Yeah, he was under conviction and he confessed it, but that's not enough. I believe Sunday after Sunday, there are people in here that are under conviction that still don't repent. They say no. It involves conviction, it involves confession. As I said, Pharaoh confessed to Moses, I have sinned. Judas confessed that he, had sin that he had sinned. A lot of people confess, not out of repentance, but out of being caught. You get caught, yeah, you take ownership of it. Yeah, I did it. That doesn't mean you repent. Just because you admit that you've done something is not repentance. Just because you feel bad about doing it and just because you admit that you did it, those two things do not equal repentance. There's a third aspect called contrition. It involves contrition. Now, it's more than just being sorry. It's more than just being contrite if you repent. Now, if you repent, you will be sorry. You will be contrite, but it's more than that because you can be sorry about something and not repent. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10, Paul deals with this. He says, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry. He says, I, I'm, not, I, I, I'm not rejoicing that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. If you're just sorry and don't repent, Jesus, Paul says it's death. See, you can, you can be sorry for the way that you acted when you're drunk, but if you go back to the bottle, that's not repentance. You can be sorry that you cheated on your spouse, but if you go back to your mistress, that's not repentance. Okay? We're to repent of our sin. Unless you repent, Jesus says you will likewise 
perish. And so, so the essence of repentance, let's talk secondly about the execution of repentance. How does it happen? What takes place in a person's life? The word repent is the Greek word metanoia, which literally means a change of mind. So when you repent, you have a change of mind. It's like you say, well, I, I didn't used to think this was a sin, but now I understand that it's a sin. It is a change of mind that produces a change of action. Many times you hear the word that's, that's repent mean an about face. In other words, you're walking towards something because you think it's fine, but when you repent, you do an about face, leaving whatever it was that you thought was fine that's no, no longer do you think it's fine. You leave it behind and you begin to walk towards the Lord. That is the essence of the word repentance. There's a Canadian town called Wabush on the western tip of Labrador in the province of Newfoundland, Canada. Let's just say you can't get there from here. All right, I was reading about this town this week. You can go in by a small plane, you can take a, a rail car in, or you can drive. But if you drive, there's only one two-lane road into the town of Wabush. From Quebec City here, down here, from the closest town in the Quebec, it's an eight-hour drive to Wabush. Eight hours one way in, eight hours one way out. If you drive in, there's only one way to get out, and that's to, to drive out to turn around and go back. Why do I tell you that? Imagine that every one of us is born in a town called sin. Every one of us born in a town called sin. And the truth is, we all inherit that sin nature, and so we are sinners by nature when we're born. The only way out of the town called sin, there's only one road out, and it's, it's been paved by God, and it's called repentance. It's the only way that you can get, get out of the town called sin is to repent, to leave it behind you and to come out of it. That's the execution of repentance. That's how it happens. Now, this is where the wheels come off the wagon for a lot of church members, all right? A lot of church members look back at when they had an emotional experience and they, they think they were saved, but, but here's the proof in the pudding, okay? Has there, has there really been a change in your life since that experience do people who knew you back then would they say that they can see a change in your life today from the way you behave back then if not you need to ask yourself have I really repented or did I just make a decision one day have I really genuinely turned from my sin now I think everybody here wants forgiveness I don't think there's anybody here who doesn't want forgiveness, but I don't think everybody here wants to repent. It's kind of like the little boy who got ready for church. Mom got him all ready, and she was still getting ready, and he was allowed to go out in the backyard and play, and as little boys do, he got in the mud. He came in, and he was covered with mud, and she said, look at you. What am I going to do with you? Go jump in the bath and put a new set of clothes on. He said, no. She said, what do you mean no? He said, I want to be forgiven. I just don't want to be clean. That's the way a lot of church folks are. They want to be forgiven. They want to know that their sins are forgiven, but they really don't want to be clean. They don't want to repent and turn from that sin. They just want to know that they're forgiven. Why on any given Sunday do 50% of the people who have membership at some point, sometime, walk the aisle of one of the Eastwood Baptist Church sanctuaries, join the church, said, this is where God wants me to be, and yet on any given Sunday, 50% aren't in church? Why is that? It's easy. They've never repented. Why is it 
that Sunday after Sunday, folks come and they rob God of, of his tithe and, and an offering. And, and not only that, they don't give a dime to the church they attend. Why is that? It's easy because they haven't repented. It's not hard. Why do, why, do, why do so many church members have the same sense of humor, use the same language, um, the, the, the same uh, activities as their lost friends? That's easy. They haven't repented. Like Pharisees in Matthew 24, Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed sepulchers. He said on the outside you look good, but inside you're just full of dead men's bones. Some of you went to Israel with me in the past, and, and as you stand on the Mount of Olives and look over towards the old city, you know the, the cemetery that's there at the, towards the base of the Mount of Olives. It is beautiful. People are buried there in, in these stone-white sepulchers, above ground, stone boxes, and they're beautiful. They are beautiful on the outside. It's, it's one of the most beautiful cemeteries I've ever seen. But inside those boxes is nothing but dead people. And that's what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees. He said, listen, you haven't repented of your sin. On the outside, you look good. You go to temple, you pray, you fast, you give, you do whatever. But inside, you're dead. The late Jack Eckerd founded a large chain of drugstores. I remember growing up in Florida of my high school years, and Eckerd drugstores were everywhere. In the 1980s, he reached out to Chuck Colson to help bring about some prison reform in the state of Florida. And, and they would fly around in Jack Eckerd's plane, and he would introduce Chuck Colson every time, and he would use the same introduction. Here's what he would say. This is my friend Chuck Colson. I met him on Bill Buckley's television program. He's born again. I'm not. I wish I were. Same introduction every time. Chuck Colson would witness to Jack Eckerd. Jack didn't think he could be saved because of the sin he had committed. Um... So, so Colson gave him C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and he read it. And he realized that he, that he could be saved, and he gave his heart to the Lord. And when he did, here's, here's the first thing Jack Ecker did. He was the owner of 1,700 drugstores. He called the president of Ecker Drugs, the man who worked for him, and he said, I want you to pull every copy of Playboy and Penthouse out of every drugstore I own. The president said, sir, do you understand that's, that's $3 million a year. You're just going to be flushing down the toilet. That's $3 million we're making every year off the sale of those two magazines. He said, I don't care. They are my stores, and we'll sell or not sell what I want. Now, why would Jack Eckerd make a decision to pull those magazines off of his shelf and cost himself $3 million? Easy. Because he was repenting of his sin. He was saying, I don't want to live that way anymore. What is the evidence of repentance? In verses 6 through 9, Jesus gives a parable that seemingly has nothing to do with this idea of unless you likewise, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. He talks about a man who owned a fig tree that, that bears no fruit. So, so what is the connection? The scripture speaks of the fruit of repentance. See, if you're repentant, you'll bear fruit that gives evidence to that. In Matthew 3, a bunch of Pharisees and Sadducees come out to John the Baptist at the Jordan River, and they want to be baptized. And he refuses. He said, no, I'm not going to baptize you. And then he tells them this in Matthew 3. He says, to bear fruits worthy of repentance. He said, go show that you are truly repentant by the fruit that you bear, and then come back out and let's talk about baptism 
In Matthew 7, 19 and 20, Jesus said, Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. See, the fruit is the real test. If you have a peach tree and it has green leaves, but it never bears any peaches, friend, that tree is as good as dead, all right? Because it's not doing what it was created, designed to do. I know that Matthew 7, 1 says that we shouldn't judge lest we um, be judged by the same standard by which we judge. But friend, I think we have a misunderstanding of that verse. That doesn't mean that we never have the ability to judge something because Jesus says clearly, by their fruit, you will know them. See, I don't have to judge somebody. They are in essence telling me whether they are saved or not by the fruit that comes out of their life. I'm not judging it. They're confessing it by the fact they either have spiritual fruit or they don't. They either have the fruit of repentance or they don't. We should bear fruit. That is the evidence. It's kind of like the guy who sent a check for $100 to the IRS. He said, I'm sorry, I cheated on my taxes. I couldn't sleep, and so here's a check for $100. And then he said, P.S., if I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. Friend, that's not repentance. Listen, partial repentance and partial rebelliousness is total rebelliousness. Do you understand that? If you're a parent and your child partially obeys and partially disobeys, I'll guarantee you, you pretty much look at it as complete disobedience. You don't say, well, I'm going to give them credit because they, they at least thought about cleaning up the room. They went to their room even though they didn't clean it. No, no, listen. If it's partial obedience and partial rebelliousness, it is 100% rebellious. Probably everyone here just about has flown on a plane. I have, and I like going up. I don't mind being up, but one of my least favorite times is landing the plane, coming down. That, that you know, just kind of worries me a little bit. And when you hit the ground, that plane is going a whole lot faster than any car you've ever driven. And what happens is, to slow that thing down, the pilot puts the engines in reverse. He literally is changing the direction of that plane to get it to slow down. If he doesn't, that's why you hear that loud roar, and that's why you feel that force against you, is because he's reversed the engines. If he doesn't reverse the engines, there's no way that runway's long enough. That plane will not stop, and it's going to crash. Friend, listen to me. If you don't reverse your life, which is repentance... You're going to crash, and it's going to be ugly. It is time for some of you today, before you leave, to throw your life in reverse, to literally change the direction of which you're headed, and to begin to walk with the Lord. That's repentance. See, every one of us on a fast road to hell. So let me give you some life application. Number one, what you think has consequences. You need to understand that what you think has consequences. In our text today, the murderer is a man by the name of Pilate. You probably know that when Jesus was arrested, he was taken to Pilate and he was tried before Pilate. And in that dialogue, in Matthew 18, Jesus answered, you, you say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I've come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Even though it was 2,000 years ago, Pilate revealed that he had a postmodern view, worldview. 
Because if you have a postmodern worldview, you, you would ask the question, what is truth? You don't believe in absolute truth, okay? You believe that truth is relative. What is true for you may not be right for me. What is right for me or wrong for me may not be wrong for you, okay? So is it wrong to lie, to steal, cheat, to steal, to, to kill? Postmodern person would say, well, it all depends. Depends on if it's right for you or wrong for you. In fact, postmoderns, they like to use things like school shootings to prove that God doesn't exist, all right? They'll say things like this. You know, if there really was a God, he wouldn't let this kind of stuff happen. He wouldn't allow innocent school kids to be slaughtered on a school campus. Now, what they are doing is they are literally arguing against themselves because what they have said is there is a moral, transcendent, absolute that you shouldn't kill and you can't have a, a transcendent, absolute truth without a transcendent God giving that truth. Somebody has to say this is, this is always wrong or it's always right. And so when they say that that is a proof that, that God doesn't exist, they're arguing against themselves. The, the relative thought process of Pilate has consequences. Since he believed that truth was relative, he lacked a moral compass, and so killing those people that worship, that was no big deal to Pilate. That was just another day at the office because he didn't understand what truth was. What you think has consequences. Let me give you life application number two about this idea of repentance. What you are is no better or no worse. There's nobody here who's any better than anyone else. There's no one here who's any worse than anyone else see that was a first century misconception that jesus was dealing with they were assuming that the galileans must have been worse sinners if they weren't worse that that tower wouldn't have fallen on them or or, or Pilate wouldn't have killed them if they if they weren't worse sinners jesus says that is a misconception he says, there are no worse sinners. He's, he says, listen, in fact, he's, he's implying here moral equivalency. He says, you're as bad as they are. If you don't repent, you likewise will perish. That's what he says. So he's telling the, the people there that you're no better than them, but you're also no worse than them. See, we like to compare ourselves to other people. I've done it, and you've done it. Now, don't look at me like you haven't, okay? Because when we have something, some area that's, questionable or wrong in our life we like to look at other people and say well you know there's always so and so and they're a whole lot worse off than I am and so I'm not that bad compared to them friend what we are is no better or no worse than them Jesus would be telling us that let me give you a couple of scriptures first John three fifteen. John says everyone who hates his brother is a murderer Matthew 5 27 Jesus says you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so, friend, what that means is every one of us are murderers and adulterers, according to the Word of God. You say, well, I've never really hated anybody. Come on. <laughs> Some of you still got people you hate now. Okay, John says if we hate our brother, we're a murderer. If we lust, we're an adulterer. If we have lust in our heart. The point is, we are no better or worse than anyone else. Life application number three. The opportunities that you have today are one day going to be gone. Opportunities you have today are one day going to be gone. 1 John 4, 7 says God is love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says love is patient. 
The fact that Jesus hasn't come back for 2,000 years, I believe, is evidence of the love of God, the great patience, the long-suffering nature of God. But there's, there's going to come a day when God's patience will run out. You need to understand that. One day, his patience is going to run out. And it's going to happen in one of two forms for you. One is, Jesus is going to come back for the church, and you're not going to be one of those folks. At that point, repentance is no longer an option for you. Or, number two, you're going to die. And if that happens, repentance is off the table for you. It is no longer an option. None of us know how we're going to die. We don't know when we're going to die. But you know the statistic, one out of one dies. Everyone here, unless the Lord comes back before, is going to die. We have no power over that. Ecclesiastes 8.8. 8. No one has power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit. No one has power in the day of death. You have an opportunity today to repent, but that opportunity will one day be gone forever. The final application, what will you do? What will you do? In, in the wake of the mass murder of the Galileans, Jesus encouraged the people to repent. He said, don't worry about if they were wrong or if they were right. Unless you repent, you're likewise going to perish. When, when they were worried about the ones who had been crushed by the tower, he says, don't worry about that, whether you were better or worse than them. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Friend, the proverbial ball is in your court. What will you do? Jim Elliott, the man who gave his life as a missionary to the Aka Indians, before he, before he died, said this, when it comes time to die, make sure all you have to do is die. What he was saying is make sure that your repentance is taken care of. Now, some of you, you need to listen here. Some of you need to hear what Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Where sin was in abundance, grace was more abundant, is what he's saying. Some of you, I know, the devil has convinced you that you have sinned too much, too greatly in order to be saved. Friend, you need to understand that even though sin may have been abundant in your life, God's grace is more abundant, according to, to, to what Paul said there, chapter 5, verse 20. But persistence, persistent unrepentance hardens the heart. If you continue to say no over and over and over again, every time you say no, it gets easier to say no. Every time you refuse the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you refuse to repent, it gets easier to say no the next time. So what will you do? Some of you need to repent today and be saved need to leave the town of sin and turn to Jesus. Some of you need to repent and walk with God again. You're like the prodigal son. You're part of the family, but you've walked away from the Lord, and it's time to return. Others of you need to join a church that preaches the whole counsel of God, and God's been bringing you here for a reason. What's the reality of what Jesus is saying? The chance for those Galileans to repent is gone. Whether they were saved or lost, they are eternally and forever that way. Friend, when you die, whether you are saved or lost, you will be forever eternally that way. Turn to Jesus while you have time. Father, I thank you for your word. 
I thank you for this very clear understanding, this very clear teaching of Jesus that unless we repent of our sin, that we will perish in our sin and be eternally lost. God, I thank you for the opportunities that we have today. Opportunities to give our heart to you. Help us to understand that one day those opportunities are going to be gone. God, I trust now your word, which says the preaching of your word doesn't return void. And so I sense that your spirit has been drawing people to make decisions. Lord, my desire is that you would find us obedient, that we would simply respond to your spirit. Help each of us to understand we're not responding to this pastor or to this church. We're simply saying yes to the Spirit of God. Lord, be pleased now through our obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.